right, uh, ladies and gentlemen, if we could all find a seat. We have now come to one of my favorite portions of all conferences, and that is the question and answer period. I'm particularly excited because I'm not answering any of them. <laughs> so we told you to text in all of your questions throughout the day, but uh, PJ and I are actually going to ditch all of your questions and ask Don all of our questions. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, we're just gonna simply, we, we got tons and tons and tons of uh, questions. Many of them were great. So we picked uh, the 20 or so best ones and we have an hour, we'll just see how many uh, we get through. And some of them were very similar, so we combined them together. But uh, why don't I open up in a word of prayer and just ask that uh, we would be built up and edified and encouraged and perhaps even corrected at this time. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for what you have done for us. We would ask that by your grace and by your spirit that you would continue to transform us, that our minds would be renewed, change our hearts, change our, our thinking. May we be encouraged, corrected, directed, rebuked, whatever it is that, that you desire to do. And even now through this question and answer period, I just pray that we would be built up and edified for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So we'll just uh, jump right in. Uh, one questioner wanted to know what the A in D.A. Carson stands for. Does it stand for awesome? As I, as I know my own heart, it stands for awful. Um, actually, it stands for Arthur, but whoever calls any boy Arthur these days? We just call him awesome. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, the whole DA bit, you see, I, I'm Canadian by birth, and then I did all my education in either Canada or Europe, and, and that at a time when, when, when authors put down initials, so it's C.S. Lewis, not Clive Staples Lewis. It's J.I. Packer, not James, I forgot the, what the I is for, Packer. And, and it's P.G. Woodhouse. And, and so, so I was D.A. Carson, it was J.R.W. Stott. I mean, so the, 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 there was no desire simply to go around being called D.A. It was just, I belonged to that generation and that sort of cultural niche, do you, do you know? Whereas if I'd been born in the U.S. and had started publishing here first, I'm sure it would have been Don Carson or following the example of those who put the whole thing, Donald Arthur Carson or what, whatever. <laughs> Instead, it's D.A. Carson, what can I say? But the only one who's allowed to call me D.A. is my wife. <laughs> Did you call him D.A.? No. No, I was actually, I was like, doctor, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't actually known any a doctor on a personal basis, so this is yeah. well, you know, for me. My friends still call me doctor. That's a cultural thing too, isn't it? I go to China and n nobody ever refers to me as anything less than professor or maybe the reverend professor or maybe even the reverend doctor professor. I go to Australia and every 10-year-old calls me Don. And Those Australians, cheeky. Yeah. I, I don't really care. It's just culture, isn't it? I mean, it, it's, it's different sets of, I mean, you can live with that. It's n nothing, it's just funny. Is it true that you have the New Testament memorized in Greek? No. <laughs> well, we can put that one to rest. <laughs> Mandarin, maybe, but not, no, no, no. <laughs> oh. We did want to start off with a few, a bunch of people had a few personal questions. Yeah, yeah, but this I can tell. <laughs> this one's, um, I think, very special. How were you born again? Well, I mentioned that earlier, uh, actually, that I don't know if I was converted when I was a boy, eight, almost nine, in a camp called Muskoka Baptist Conference in Ontario, where I heard a preacher by the name of Sam McAlaskey preach the gospel and, uh, and felt convicted of my sin, whatever that looks like in a, an eight or nine-year-old, and went and uh, confessed my sin to the Lord by my bed in, 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 my, in my room. I was there with my parents. Or if it was in second-year university, where I was going through a whole lot of self-examination all over again. I really don't know. Um, uh, which was the context in which I actually did close with Christ. Do you ever lose perspective in the middle of your week? If so, how do you practically preach the gospel to yourself when you have? 
do I ever lose perspective? No, I have achieved sinless perfection. <laughs> of course Did you talk I... about that at the next session? <laughs> <laughs> of course I lose perspective. I'm not, I'm not just in the middle of the week. I mean, usually I manage to do it at the beginning of the week, the middle of the week, and the end of the week altogether. I mean, to, to, really, to really get things, you know, in balanced perspective all the time and be, be right and have right priorities and good motives and a good heart and so on, you know, you're supposed to keep uh, uh, close accounts with God, but uh, at the end of the day, we're sinners still, and, and that will continue, wrestling with the world and the flesh and the devil till Christ himself comes back, do, 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 do you know? So when you say, how do you preach the gospel? An awful lot depends on what, what kind of things you're, you're facing. I mean, if it's just the sort of run-of-the-mill stuff, you just, I mean, in, in our family, we, we normally have individual devotions in the morning, and we, my wife and I, when, when the kids were there, the kids, and they've grown up now, would have that in the evening at supper time. And, and um, my wife and I always pray again before we go to bed. So there, there are checkpoints in our lives where, where they're, they're natural places to, to um, uh, confess your sin and to uh, see what's going on and, 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 and so on. But on the other hand, I, I'm not a hugely emotional person. I'm, I'm fairly boring. Uh, some people have their huge highs and huge downs. I, I'm pretty flat. But every once in a while, when I'm really tired or I've pushed too hard or I have too many pastoral problems all sort of descending on me, I can be on the edge of really grim despair. And then I find that there are certain kinds of things like uh, meditating again or renewing the memory work again of Revelation 4 and Revelation 5, two great passages on the throne room of God and the triumph of Christ and the glory of the gospel and so on. So th there's certain kinds of set things that I know will, will be exhilarating and encouraging and refocus me again and, 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 and so on that is, is, is full of the gospel. Do you, do, you, do you see it? And sometimes in the, because so much of my life is bound up with teaching and preaching the gospel, I, I am in the scriptures pretty commonly so that sometimes just in the regular course of preparing for things, God speaks to me out of, out of these same scriptures that I'm preparing for other people, which is the way it ought to be, too. You, you, you know what I mean? Otherwise, you're a mere professional, you, you, you know, and it's preparing a text the way a Shakespearean scholar might prepare to be or not to be, to lecture it in a, in a class, do, 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 you see, and you, you don't want to do that as well. So there are lots of ways. I, I, sometimes my musical tastes are disturbingly eclectic. Um, <laughs> but sometimes, and, and a lot of places where I go to speak, I fly. Uh, but if I'm driving somewhere, then I have very divergent music with me, and sometimes I throw in a, you know, a CD, which might be which might be classical music or the like that I find really exhilarating or helpful, or it might be, it might be Keith and Kirsten Getty or something. Uh, it, it, it's it's pretty diverse tastes, but but uh, rarely lyrics that are really dumb or merely repetitious. Uh, <laughs> The, the, the penchant for singing more frequently, more repeatedly, those lyrics that are most empty is a rather disturbing one in the church, it seems to me. Um, so so, so the, the aim is to, to find lyrics and songs with good music, but also with good content that you think about, that draws you on to Christ, and that you glory in, and, and so on. Um, so, so sometimes that. I like poetry. Now, I know that makes me a bit of a geek or a weirdo or something, but I am what I am. What can I say? Uh, I like poetry. So sometimes I read poetry, and um, um, uh, some, sometimes old, old hymns that nobody sings anymore, um, or old poetry that was at one time set to music. Um, yeah, there's a... I, I won't bore you with some examples now. I mean, I, I can give you quite a lot of examples because I, I We're kind of hoping you would, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't believe him. You were um, reciting things in French earlier. That was fun. Yeah, yeah. But you all didn't get to hear that. Um, moving on to things that are a little more generally gospel before getting into a lot of the questions that had to do with John 3 and the other, the other texts. Um, how do you respond to people who consider your focus on gospel centrality as being only the milk of the word? You had mentioned earlier the gospel just kind of tips you in, and so some people yeah. would say you're just only focusing on the milk and not the bigger and greater things of Gog and Magog and things of that nature. <laughs> Well, I, I would say start, start with what Paul says are the matters of first importance. And what Paul says are the matters of first importance in 1 Corinthians 15 are the truths of 
Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and so on, and its implications for our living and thinking now. Then another thing you can usefully do is take a concordance and look up every instance of gospel, evangelize, preach the gospel, and so on. It's the same word group, evangel, you know, look them all up. And see the diversity of rich ways in which these, the, the notion of the gospel is tied to ethics, to conduct, to behavior, to suffering, to, I mean, it's just tied to absolutely everything. And um, so it, it becomes part of the whole central story. And then when you see what this gospel is, that's centered on Christ, then it's not long before you begin to see that this center on Christ and his cross and resurrection. That ties you to the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament and to Yom Kippur and the priestly things and the temple things and Passover and so on. Well, those are just huge. They're absolutely central to the whole understanding of law in the Old Testament. You, did you see? And that, that's what gets renewed at the rebuilding of the temple, for example, in Nehemiah and Ezra. So those things are really central again. And it's central in the preaching of, 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 of Haggai. And, 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 and suddenly you, you start seeing those are the, those are the, the, tenues, the, ten, the, the tendons that, that hold um, the Bible together. When I teach courses on expository preaching, one of the things I, I keep insisting on is that, is that good expository preaching should ideally not only expound the particular text at hand, but the expositor should keep his eye open for what I call the intracanonical links, that is, the, the, the tendons in Scripture that tie certain books and biblical corporate together along the Bible's whole storyline. I mean, how, how does the theme of temple work out throughout the whole Bible? How does the theme of priest work out throughout the whole Bible? How does the theme of, of and, and so on? And all of these things are really tightly tied to Christ's death and resurrection and, 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 and to the gospel. Do, 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 do you see? So from many, many angles, you start seeing that the gospel is really the big synthesizing category that makes an impact absolutely everywhere. And believe it or not, it's not Gog and Magog. To what extent uh, may professing Christians divide over sin or doctrinal issues? If so, how can this uh, how can this be done graciously? When people ask a question of that sort, prefaced by "To what extent do Christians or should Christians divide over sin or doctrinal issues?" I, I never know how to answer. I mean, oh, up to thirty-six point seven percent. You know, it's 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 one of those open-ended questions that could go absolutely anywhere. Um, uh, uh, all I can do is give you two or three guidelines. Um, uh, first, there are different contexts. That is, what might be allowable in the context of um, an organization like the Gospel Coalition, uh, which has a pretty robust theological statement of faith. Re read it for yourself. Go to the website and look up foundation documents. It's pretty robust. On the other hand, um, it allows in both Presbyterians and Baptists. But at the local church, somewhere along the line, you're going to have to decide somewhere along the line what kind of baptism you're going to practice. So there might be a tighter circle of what you allow and disallow in the context of a local church. There's going to be some sort of system of church government, some sort of accountability. How, how, how is that worked out? Did you see? Those are issues that we don't finally address in the coalition statement of faith. So in a, a transdenominational group like TGC, then the, the allowances might be a little larger than in the context of a local church where they may be a little narrower. Do you see? And then within a local church, then you, you might hold, for example, um, the teachers of the church to a higher standard than some fresh convert in from, from who knows what kind of background has actually come to love Christ, and, and, but he or she might still have all kinds of screwball ideas and all kinds of things. And you don't say, well, then out the door, you know, unless you have at least a PhD in biblical studies, you really can't belong to this church. No, 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 no. People are on a pilgrimage. They're growing, you see. But you don't allow them to teach anything in the church yet. They've got quite a long way to go before they are reliable. And, and so what, what you mean by, you know, where you have division is, is really going to depend on, on, on what sort of pecking order and, 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 and uh, experience and, and authority that they have in the context of the local church. And even on ethical issues, you, you, you have to distinguish between that which the Bible unambiguously commands or forbids and that which is at best an inference. And be careful not to make all the inferences as binding as Scripture itself. Then, moreover, you also have to acknowledge that some of those things have cultural associations in one culture that they don't have in another culture. 
um, so that, um, I mean, when I was growing up, most, uh, most evangelicals, certainly conservative evangelicals, wouldn't be caught dead in North America drinking any alcohol. And, um, and, and, and nowadays, that's, that's largely gone in the younger generation, with mixed results, I would say, probably a little more freedom. But on the other hand, um, on the other hand, probably a little more occasion of drunkenness and idiocy too. On occasion too, uh, all in the name of freedom. I mean, I, I know some some Christian guys from a, a nearby institution who like to boast that one night a, a year they just go out all by themselves and get drunk somewhere. Oh, good. I mean, well, what a sign of Christian maturity and freedom that is. You win some and lose some of those things. You don't want to make it a, a kind of sort of policed you know, legal system of righteousness. But on the other hand, wh where is the, the, the desire for self-denial that I might usefully use my time and energies in more creative ways for the gospel of Christ? Where does sort of getting drunk with the guys fit into that somehow, you know? Um, <laughs> But, but on the other hand, um, when I'm in France, where Christians have always drunk, um, whether you're, whether you're, you know, a very very conservative Protestant or charismatic or what, it doesn't really matter. Christians in France drink. Um, then, then when I'm in France and I'm speaking at some sort of convention or other in Paris or whatever, and then they take me out for a meal afterwards, and and they're saying light meat or dark meat. So which wine will you want? Lighter, red, or, red or white, and so on. Then then. Um, you know, if, if the Apostle Paul can say, one man thinks of one day above another, another man thinks all days are the same, let each be fully persuaded in his own mind, then I'm quite sure he's going to say, one man uh, wants to be a teetotaler, and the other one rather likes his port, let each be fully persuaded in his own mind. And, and uh, I, I can live with that, that sort of flexibility. If that makes me a compromiser, blame Paul. Uh, <laughs> But, but then there, there, there are other ethical issues that are bound up with it, too. I mean, Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 says that, um, that you've also got to watch for the weaker brother. Now, uh, the weaker brother in the context is the one who has a weak conscience about something, who, who thinks that something is wrong, even though the thing is not itself wrong. Maybe, to use my example of alcohol, it would be someone who's come from an alcoholic background, just just bound up with alcoholism and his family and all the rest, and he knows he can't touch the stuff again. If he does, he's going to go right off the wagon and, and the whole bit, you, you see? Well, in that context, I'm not showing my gospel freedom by inviting him into my home and putting a glass of, of wine in front of him. You, you, you know, that, that, that's, that's, that, that's I, I need to curtail my freedom. That's what Paul says. For the sake of the person with a weaker conscience, you, you curtail it. But supposing somebody in the church comes to me and says, um, if you drink wine, you're in big trouble because the Bible says you're not supposed to offend me. <laughs> then I'm likely to say, oh, I'm so sorry to hear you've got a weaker conscience. How did that happen? <laughs> because, you see, they don't think they have a weaker conscience. They think they have got the strong conscience, which shows that they haven't understood the passage at all. If somebody says to me, you cannot be a Christian and drink, I will say, pass the port. <laughs> For the very simple reason that you cannot hold the exclusive sufficiency of Christ hostage to anything. On the other hand, on the other hand, in North America, usually I, I don't drink. I mean, there are too many circles I move in where people have weak consciences, they're baby Christians, and I haven't sussed this out yet. In France, I'm not promising anything. <laughs> So next time we do this conference in France is what you're saying. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> you spoke extensively uh, in John 3 on the new birth. We got um, several questions about that. So, so here's a few. Is the kingdom of God synonymous with eternal life and new birth as described in John? Very good question. Not an easy one to answer quickly. It, it cannot be synonymous. They're, they're different categories. Uh, life is talking about existence in the presence of God and so on. Kingdom is a category of reign. Kingdom, as used dominantly in Scripture, really means king dominium, reign, we might say, the reign of God, rather than kingdom as first and foremost a geographical entity. 
Now, it can be the kingdom of Israel or the kingdom of Edom. It can be a geographical entity. But when we read in the Psalms, for example, God's kingdom rules over all, clearly what that means is his reign, his authority, his sovereignty is over all. Do, 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 do you see? And, and what people expected is that the reign of God would so come into this world, would so break into this world again with the coming of the Messiah, that it would be a big bang and be all over and be, there would be righteousness and integrity everywhere. And in fact, one of the things that Jesus is constantly saying, especially in the Synoptic Gospels, is, yeah, but the kingdom is not coming like that. Instead, the king is coming like leaven, yeast, in, a dough, in dough to, to, that permeates the whole. It's coming like seed being sown on different kinds of soils, being accepted in different kinds of ways, and so on, so on, so on, you see? So the kingdom is not coming with a big bang. That's going to happen right at the very end when Jesus comes back. Right now, it's coming slowly. It is already invading. It is doing its transforming work, but it is being contested at every stage. And, and in that sense, it's the whole notion of reign. And this reign of God then uh, has a, another axis to it. In, in one sense, you see, if God's reign is his sovereignty, God's reign rules over all, you're in God's kingdom whether you like it or not. You can be an atheist, you can be a secularist, you can be on planet Mars, doesn't matter. You're in God's kingdom whether you like it or not because you're under his sovereignty. You can't escape God's reign in that sense. But in the sense in which John 3 is using it, clearly that there are some who are in the kingdom and some who are not, and only those who are born again are in the kingdom. So in that sense, the kingdom here is that subset of God's reign under which there is eternal life. In that sense, you're either in the kingdom or you're not. So when Jesus rises from the dead in Matthew's gospel, he says, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. In that sense, he's, he's sovereign over the whole kit and caboodle. As, 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 as 1 Corinthians 15 puts it, all of God's sovereignty is mediated through Christ until all of his enemies have been put under his feet. In that sense, we're still all under Christ's authority. In that sense, we're all under his reign. The kingdom is really big, and, and all of God's sovereignty is mediated through Christ. In a smaller sense, you're either in the kingdom or you're not. You belong to the wheat or to the tares. You belong to the sheep or to the goats. Do, 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 do you see? And in that sense, then, you have to be born again to be in the kingdom. So it's not then that kingdom is synonymous with. There are different categories. But as used in John's gospel, it's that subset of God's dynamic kingdom under which there is the transformed living of the new birth. Does that make sense? And still here, God's kingdom is, is contested. But one day, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, and then it will no longer be contested either. So does the new birth by water and spirit from John 3, does that precede belief or result from belief? That's the next question. Um, you, you have actually raised um, a question that has been hugely debated in the history of the church under, under the rubric, the ordo salutis. It's so called, that's Latin. What can I say? I don't know what that is. Yeah. Um, it, it, it literally means the order of salvation. And at the time of the Reformation, uh, a lot of Christians gave that a whole lot of thought. I mean, does, does, does new birth come before justification? Does justification come before sanctification? And, 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 and does belief come before either of them, or does belief come as a consequence of whatever, do you see? And, and the, the, the fact is that in some ways, this is a question raised by the Bible itself, because in Romans 8, you have the golden chain, for example. Those whom God foreknew, those also he predestined, those he predestined, those also he justified, those he justified, those he also sanctified, those he sanctified, those he glorified. You see, there's a golden chain of progression, and everybody who's in one is in the other. You see, all the way down. So those questions are, in, in some ways, raised by the Bible itself. What I would say about this particular one is that, that, that the, there's another factor that needs to be thrown in. Um, there are some Christians, especially in the Reform, most Christians in the Reform camp would simply say um, that, that God's um, uh, regenerating work uh, precedes belief. That is, you have to have the work of the Spirit in your life in regeneration actually to believe. And I understand what's being said, and the purpose of what's being said, I want to affirm insofar as it's bound up with God's eternal election from before the world began, which we've also seen surfacing again and again in these texts. But there is another way of wording it that might not get you into quite so many trouble, troubles because, because um, yeah, I, I won't go into the whole debate. And, uh, and that, is, that is to say, um, no one will come to faith, no one will come to believe, no one, 
uh, unless, unless he or she is taught by God. There is a work of grace in the life. As, as Paul puts it in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the natural man does not receive the things of God. They're, they're foolishness to him. Uh, the, 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 the person's got to be taught by God. Jesus is the same thing in John chapter 6, quoting the Old Testament and so on. So there is a, a, a work of, of, of convicting, transforming work by the Spirit that enables us to believe. Now, whether you call that convicting work of the Spirit regeneration itself or the convicting work, the transforming work, the renewing, the opening of the blind eyes, the enabling that enables you to believe such that regeneration proper follows that really is a relatively minor point so long as you still insist that at the end of the day there's something sovereign that belongs to God. And there's something is that you are responsible for, uh, which, which is belief, yet nevertheless, if you do believe, you're going to acknowledge at the same time that God has enabled you so to do. There's a lovely hymn that puts it, another one that we don't sing anymore. Um, I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my heart to seek him, seeking me. Uh, Twas not so much, uh, Twas not that I, not seek him, seeking me, Twas not so much, oh, I forgot how it goes now. Then the second stanza pictures Peter walking on the water. Um, Thou didst reach forth thine hand and mine enfold. I walked and sank not on the storm-swept sea. Twas not so much that I on thee took hold as thou, dear Lord, on me. <laughs> so there's a way of, of wording these things so that at the end of the day, there is, there is a, a free acclamation of the grace of God in, in, in his sovereign sway in, in our conversion in the gospel. You... Um mentioned a couple times there was uh, the concept of social justice and people doing involved in these kinds of activities that's not the gospel because the gospel is something that God has done for us um, we got many questions about that how do you reconcile social justice meeting physical or felt needs with presenting the gospel what does the balance ideally yeah. look like that's a very good question and it is not an easy one to answer um, and, and there have been some very fine Christians that have worded things just a wee bit um, differently. Moreover, it's an issue that has come up repeatedly in the last 10 years or so. There's a new generation of, of, of genuine Christians who want to be biblically faithful who are asking the right sorts of questions along these lines. Uh, that doesn't mean that the answers given are always right, but they're, they're the right kinds of questions. So um, I expected that question to come up. I'm, I'm glad that it has. Um, there's a very recent book by Tim Keller just off the press that's wrestling with exactly some of the same, the same issues. Um, and if you want to see in brief compass how we've tried to do it in a coalition, take a look at our foundation documents, not simply our statement of faith, but also our theological vision of ministry, where again, we wrestle long and hard on how to get that uh, right. L let, let me outline some things that Christians have fought over on this regard and then, and then try to articulate it the way I would. This is going to take a little longer, but I think that it's, that it's worth it. There have been historically uh, both good examples and bad examples. Um, bad example, in the late 1800s, early part of the 20th century, the 1900s, there were a lot of Christians who still largely preserved theological orthodoxy, who were more and more and more associating gospel faithfulness with education and, and uh, raising the standards of the poor and drilling wells and all this kind of thing, until gradually the gospel actually became faded from view and the whole mainline church thing slunk into what came to be called the social gospel, which was really no gospel at all. Um, and that can happen very easily. Um, it, 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 it doesn't happen in the first place by denying things. Uh, I've been teaching for several decades now, and I have learned something about what my students learn. What do my students learn from Don Carson? I'll tell you this. They don't learn everything Don Carson teaches them. They don't. They tend to learn what Don Carson is excited about. So if I get into the place where I assume the gospel, but I'm really excited about all the social justice issues, then without ever once denying anything essential to the gospel, my students will then be fastened on the social justice issues and the gospel will become less and less important to them. Now for me, it might be important. It might be very important. It's just that I'm assuming it in my teaching. But that means that in another generation, at most two generations, the gospel is lost, absolutely lost. 
Most people in the social justice movement from the 1880s, 1930s, thereabouts, did not begin by denying the gospel. They began by assuming it, but no longer being excited by it while they moved on to other things. And the next generation then lost the gospel. So one of the things we've tried very hard to do in the Gospel Coalition is to preserve, foster, promote all the time in our sermons, in our speaking, in our encouragement with, with one another, real excitement as to what the Gospel is and how to proclaim it. Because if you, if, if you, if, if, if you lose that um, and merely begin to assume it, your, your students, your next generation, the generation after them, will, will actually come pretty quickly to deny it. So that's a bad example from history. Good example from history? In 1740, in Britain, um, Bible interests, gospel interests had sunk so low that on Easter Sunday, in St. Paul's Cathedral, London, there were only six people who showed up for Holy Communion. There were 280 crimes on the books for which you could be hanged, including stealing a loaf of bread. Slavery was rising in the burgeoning British Empire. The Industrial Revolution guaranteed that children at the age of five were down in the mines digging coal or working on hand looms and dangerous equipment. The rich were getting very rich, the poor were getting very poor. <coughs> then God raised up Howell Harris, began preaching in Welsh in 1734. Hundreds and then thousands were converted. In 1738, George Whitfield began to preach to coal miners at five o'clock in the morning outside the coal mines near Bristol. You'd catch them at a change of the shift and stand there and preach. And he talked about how the gospel of God so transformed their lives as the Spirit came down upon them. These men would weep, and as their tears rolled down their faces, it would wipe the coal dust off their faces as they came out of the mines. 1740, John Wesley was converted, and his brother Charles. And for 60 years, the gospel in one fashion or another was articulated on both sides of the Atlantic in what came to be called the Great Evangelical Awakening. And out of that came Wilberforce and Shaftesbury and people like that who fought prodigiously to uh, ban the slave trade and then abolish slavery itself in the empire and uh, produce child labor laws and prison reform laws and on and on and on and on. Almost all of them rammed through by converts of Whitfield and Wesley in the British Parliament. Now, here you see this sort of thing working out pretty nicely, don't you? But one of the things that you do observe during all of that period is that the people who were leading it were first and foremost Christian Christian. They were gospel Christians. So that one of the things that was lost in the film Amazing Grace, historically one of the things that was lost, it, 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 it gave the impression that Wilberforce though he was contemplating the ministry, was encouraged by Newton to, to go a different route and just devote all of his energies into abolishing the slave trade. And, and that was gospel faithfulness, and, and that, that was all right too. Historically, that's a load of rubbish. Historically, yes, Newton did encourage him to go along those lines, but it was within the framework in which, in which Wilberforce himself, all of his life, was fighting on many, many social fronts, and meanwhile was having devotions in the morning with his family, devotions in the evening with his family, witnessing to people on the street, evangelizing, teaching in his local church, and trying to lead people to Christ. He was a Christian full of the gospel, do you see? For whom this was his day job as an MP working in the Houses of Parliament. That's a very different flavor than you get out of the film, isn't it? That, that, was, that was the shameful part of the film. You, you, you don't see what a gospel-centered person he was passionately all of his life so that even his work to abolish the slave trade was actually a function of his outworking of the understanding of how the gospel transforms people's lives. But you lost all of that. In that sense, the film was highly manipulative. Now, as people have talked about these things at the end of the 20th and beginning of the 21st century, there are several models that keep cropping up. Number one, and you can see problems with all of them. Number one, you, you, you do deeds of mercy in order to gain credibility to preach the gospel. Now, there are a lot of people who, who think along those lines. So that if people are starving to death and they don't have wells, then you drill wells in the Sahel. And then, of course, you gain more of a witness. And so, therefore, um, therefore you have a, an audience that will be open to, to hearing the gospel. And then the purists come along and say, no, 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 that's all wrong. That's manipulative. That's not offering the help for the help's sake. Out of compassion, it's merely to manipulate people into listening. Others say, 
Well, it doesn't really work like that. You preach the gospel, and the gospel so transforms you that, that um, um, you are changed, and therefore you will do good deeds. Uh, the entailment of John 3, thus it is with everyone who is born of God, you see? So, so in that case, the good deeds, the deeds of justice and mercy and all those sorts of concerns, they come out of the results of the gospel. They're not the gospel, they're the results of the gospel. And the purists come back and say, <clears throat> yeah, but that makes that order of help so secondary, so second string, that, that it's no longer part of the mandate of the gospel itself. Can't quite buy that. So what some have said... In my view, this is a big mistake, but it's a mistake articulated by people whose ministries I revere. Uh, John Stott, for example, and more recently, Chris Wright. Um, uh, they argue that what you have to see is that the Bible has two huge um, visions, two huge missions. One is the gospel, properly conceived, and it's about preaching what God has done in Christ Jesus and so on. And the other is social justice. That's also demanded. And the two are not linked tightly in any way, shape, or form. They're just both there in the Bible, and you should respond positively to both of them. What I want to say is that makes, a, 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 now that the purist Don Carson is responding to that one, what I want to say is that really makes the Bible almost schizophrenic. I mean, it, 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 it's no longer a unified piece. It's, 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 just, it's blowing apart. Do, 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 do you see it? So, so, so how do I come back on, on, on all of this? I, I don't think there's a formulaic answer that's going to solve it all. I do want to say that if your motives are good and you care for people, then drilling wells in the Sahel so that they can drink ought to be part and parcel of your concern for their eternal well-being. In, in other words, when people start saying something like, you're just interested in their souls. We're interested in the whole person. I want to say the whole person for this life or for eternity. There are lots of ways you can slice and dice. One of the things we tried to do in our document of, of, uh, in, in the, the Gospel Coalition was to say that we are interested in reducing the suffering of our fellow human beings made in the image of God, suffering both temporal and eternal. Now that suddenly ratchets it all up. So that when I'm trying to do medical work, I can't help but be con being concerned about their eternal well-being as well. If there is a hell to be feared, then, then how, how, how can you avoid being concerned about that and saying that you're discharging the mission provided you've drilled wells? So at the end of the day, I get tired of the debates about whether y y y you might in part be doing justice in order to gain a hearing. Well, I hope that you'll gain a hearing by doing justice. Now, I hope that it won't be just a manipulative sort of thing, but, but I hope that by the integrity of your life, you will so adorn the gospel that you'll have a better hearing for the gospel. And then if people say, on the other hand, well, it just should flow from the gospel. Well, of course it should flow from the gospel. I mean, obviously, if your life is transformed, then you will care for people. I mean, if the most important commandment is to love God with heart and soul and mind and strength, and the second is to love your neighbor as yourself, how will this transformation of character work out in the showing of God's love for your neighbor as yourself? You know, now, there are priorities. Galatians says, do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. So you begin by providing for your own people. You know, in the, in the local church, where there was not a social system in the ancient world, the church looked after its own people first. But already, at the end of the second century, some of the Roman pagans were arguing back to Christians, we don't like what you do, but we acknowledge that you're looking, not only, you're looking after not only your own people, but also for half a, uh, looking after half the people in the empire. I mean, um, that, that, that was part of the Christian witness that gave them a certain kind of credibility and helped to reverse uh, public perceptions of what Christians were like. And was this cause or effect? I don't give a rip. I mean, it, it was the transformation brought about by the power of the gospel. Do you, do, 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 do you see? Now, if you want to push farther and say, okay, 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 so what is the right percentage of time that you devote to each? 37.32% for this one. I mean, how can you answer that sort of question? You see, because there will be different kinds of ministries and different kinds of specialisms, and you might be a geologist who's particularly uh, useful in, or uh, an industrial engineer that's, that's capable of doing particularly good things and, uh, amongst the people in the South. You might be a medical missionary that can really look after a leprosarian. But what I would say is that if you're a Christian who understands the gospel and you're working in a leprosarium somewhere, you will be looking all the time for opportunities to share your faith. 
And if you're drilling wells, you will be looking for opportunities all the time to talk about Christ and the transformation and the living water, which is what Jesus does in John 4. Do, do, do you see? So um, to, to start dividing it up in terms of percentage of time, I, I, if you're really, really concerned for these people who don't have enough water, that they're starving to death, aren't you concerned for the way they don't have living water and they're starving to eternal death? Why have you got to put them in, 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 in sort of a juxtaposition where the only way you can think about it is, 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 um, is, is percentage of time or, or, or the like? So the kind of holism that I want to see is first and foremost clarity as to what the gospel is. And then nevertheless understanding that the gospel so transforms our lives that it, it does result in, 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 in concern for people, compassion for people and, 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 and the like. In fact, I'm going to be speaking on the rich man and Lazarus on, uh, on Sunday morning in, in, in this church. Oh, that's what you're speaking on. Yeah. yeah. I thought you'd like to know. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that. You recently wrote a uh, forward, I mean, not so recent, last year or so, uh, to Greg Gilbert's book, What is the Gospel? Yeah. This question here, um, how would you explain the gospel briefly to someone who has very little or no understanding of God, Jesus, or sin? Yeah. Like if you have two minutes, three minutes, people are putting in time frames. Okay. He just wants to squeeze more questions in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, well, uh, let me duck the question first and then, and then, and then answer the question. <laughs> um, that's what we wanted. That's what I always do. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> or maybe I just duck it. <laughs> you, you, you see, um, uh, f 50 years ago, when people thought of what evangelism is, it, it was being done in a context in which most people already had some sort of general exposure to the Bible, and, and, and Easter was connected with the resurrection of Jesus, and Christmas was connected with, 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 with Jesus' birth and incarnation, and people still sang carols, you know, hail the incarnate deity. I mean, I can remember singing that when I, when I was in grade school, hail the incarnate deity. Nobody knows what that means in the streets of L.A. today, you, you, you know, but we all sang it. I mean, whether we were Christians or not, it was part of the heritage of growing up in Christianized America. And that meant that even if I were dealing with an atheist, I was dealing with a Christian atheist. That, that is to say, um, the God in whom he or she disbelieved was the Christian God. And, and therefore, the discussion categories were all on my turf. And therefore, when I did evangelism in that context, I didn't have to talk about whether it was one God or more than one God or the, the different notions of God in Buddhism or whatever. It was still basically categories that were part of the Christianized West. Do you, do you, do you, do you see? Most people still thought that the Ten Commandments were a jolly good thing. It probably did come from God and you shouldn't break them. You, you, you know? Now we do, but nevertheless, not too many. I mean, I haven't bumped anybody off. Maybe I've been a bit covetous now and then. And only adultery in my head. But no, no murder, no murder. I'm not too bad on the Ten Commandments, you know. And, and th th that's the way the conversations went. And, and, and that meant that your job in evangelism was to stress, first of all, just how awful sin is and why we're, we're, we're guilty before God. And second, the only way of being reconciled to God, namely by the escape that Christ himself has provided by dying on the cross, bearing our sin in his own body on the tree. And out of that comes repentance and faith and transformed living and the new birth and so on, so on, so on. So it, it, that, that's what the gospel was. It was pretty easy to articulate it in, in two minutes. It was pretty easy to articulate it in two minutes. Now, if you're dealing with somebody who is a complete biblical illiterate, who does not know the Bible has two testaments, who's never heard of Abraham, doesn't know anything about the law, if he hears of Moses, he confuses him with Charlton Heston, or the, the more recent cartoon figure, um, and, and has no idea what Easter is for. I mean, I've, I've got a, a friend who teaches uh, five, grade five, grade five kids in a, in a white suburb where if you think that there's any place that sort of preserves a certain kind of historical continuity, it's probably there. She asked the 28 kids in her class, uh, what do we celebrate at Easter? Three of the 28 got it right. Do, 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 do you see the, the degree of biblical literacy around is fantastic. Now, I can articulate the gospel to such people in two minutes. I can. I can say things like, there is but one God. He has made us. He is not only the sovereign of all, he is our final judge. He finds our rebellion against him, our anarchy, entirely unacceptable. He stands over against us in judgment. We ought to fear him. But mercifully, he's also a God of love who is prepared to reconcile us to himself by sending along his own son to bear our sins in his own body on the tree. I mean, I can, I can summarize the gospel very quickly. 
On the other hand, most of those categories are going to blow right over them. Too many God words, too, too many categories that, that, that they're not thinking about. They don't agree with that notion of sin. Already, if they have any notion of God, it's sort of a Jody Foster contact sort of vision of God or, or whatever. Do you, do you, you know what I mean? I can't assume that the God that they disbelieve in is the Christian God anymore. The categories aren't on my turf. And that, that means that, in, in my view, a lot of evangelism nowadays, I don't, I don't want to, to, to minimize the grace of God, the power of, the, of God to convert people from a complete pagan background in two minutes of gospel exposure. God can do anything he wants. He's sovereign. But nevertheless, God is normally the God of means. And that means that we need to take note, for example, of the way Paul approaches people in Acts 17 in in, athe in, in, in pagan, in, in pagan um, uh, Antioch, where he's dealing with people who've never heard of the Old Testament, never read of Moses, and don't know anything about that. His way of preaching to those people is very different from his way of preaching in a synagogue in Pisidian Antioch in Acts chapter 13, where everybody is already on board with the Old Testament. He doesn't have to preach there that it's only one God and that he made everything and that we're responsible and what idolatry. He doesn't have to mention all of that. They already know all of that. He gets right to the grist of it really fast and say, don't you understand if you read the Old Testament property, the Messiah's got to come and he's got to suffer and die, and we claim that that's exactly what Jesus did, and we're witnesses of these things, and now he must repent and believe. That, that's where he goes, because there's so many things that are shared. But when he's dealing with people in Antioch, he starts a lot farther back. He starts with one God, sovereign of all, not just belonging to one people, the nature of creation, the nature of the fall. I mean, basic, fundamental things have to be put in place. Do you, do you, do you see? So, Although I can answer the question, how do you summarize the gospel in two minutes, I don't think that's the best way of evangelizing in two minutes. I think that when you're d dealing with evangelism of, of, of a new generation that's biblically illiterate, the best thing you can do is to try to get them into a Bible study where they're going to be exposed to more of the gospel, to more of the Bible structure of thinking, and, 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 and so on over time. Now, at the risk of becoming a peddler, um, that's what my little book, the, 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 the God Who Is There, is really all about. It's, it's, it, it can be given to, 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 to baby Christians or young Christians to, as to how the Bible is, is put together. But it's written, actually, with sort of university-level uh, biblical illiterates in mind. So the first chapter is the God who does not, the God who made everything. It really explores Genesis 1 and 2 and what we know from the Bible about God and creation and responsibility to him. The second is the God who does not wipe out rebels. And it's really an exposition of Genesis 3, the nature of the fall, what sin is, and so on. And each one then runs in some way to Jesus. The third one is the God who writes his own agreements. It's really the Abrahamic covenant. But if you call it the Abrahamic covenant, nobody's going to have a clue what you're talking about. But it's the Abrahamic covenant and where this goes from there into Israel and the promise of in him all, in his seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed and running to Jesus again. The next one after that is um, the God who legislates. It's Moses and the giving of the law and so on. So it's working through the Bible's whole storyline in 14 chapters for complete biblical literates and it becomes more and more and more overtly evangelistic as you get on in the whole series. Do you, do, do, do you see? And then I wrote a little leader's guide for it as well with discussion questions and additional bibliography and all this kind of stuff. And this month, the video series, the whole thing's done on video as well, is, 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 is being, you can buy it in, in, in DVD, but you can download all the individual programs for free because the aim of the exercise is, is to get the gospel out there. So there are some groups that are now using this stuff experimentally in various parts of the country. And, and what I'm hoping is that this will become an evangelistic tool to evangelize precisely the kinds of people that you're talking about. Sort of like an alpha course with more Bible in it where you could have people gather around a table and, and, and watch a video, discuss, uh, meet Christians, talk, and so on, and do it over, ultimately, you know, a seven-week period here, have a break, a seven-week period there, and you, you've done the whole 14 things. People got through the whole Bible. And my experience has been when we've tried to do that sort of thing, it's actually surprising how many Christians have been grateful for it, too, because they really haven't figured out how the Bible actually hangs together. So it's partly for grounding young Christians, and it's partly for, for trying to present the gospel in a holistic framework out of the whole Bible so that it's not just a, a simple two-minute presentation. All right. That's good. I'm going to start picking and choosing with some of these. Our time is limited, but um, a couple of them I thought were just really good practical questions. One is, I work with a youth at a church that would not be considered gospel-centered. Is it wrong for me to stay if I disagree with their philosophy of ministry? Very complex. Very complex. Um, if it's a church 
whose entire denomination and structure um, are so moving away from the gospel that after you leave, you're virtually guaranteed um, more decline and decay, then it may be a wiser, it may be, not even a right or wrong absolute here, but it may be a wiser decision to invest your life in that which can build for the future. Do, 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 do you see which, which builds into something which will have another person following up and reinforcing it and so on? If, on the other hand, it's a church where the denomination is pretty stable, but, but this particular church has a particularly bad minister, um, you sticking it out until the other guy leaves might be a way of actually introducing categories that will actually call the church back and be, 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 be helpful in stabilizing things down, down, down the road. Um, I, in so many of these issues, it's not a question of, of simple right or wrong. Here's a proof text. Um, th th there are so many variables that there, there is a huge need for prudential wisdom, and, and I, I wouldn't even venture any comments as to what should be done in a particular case unless I knew an awful lot about it and about the individual and how well they can handle it and, and uh, what the potential is for the future and what the alternatives are and, and, and so on. So many of these things are, are, not, proof text, are not susceptible to proof texting answers. Uh, they, they require prudential wisdom. Right, building for the future is a really good yeah. concept to keep in mind. Um, this one's kind of off topic a little bit, but um, I think it'd be helpful for a lot of pastors, discipling men, passing on the gospel, um, and things along that line. In a city with prominent gender confusion, can you profile a godly man and a godly woman considering the distinctive, the distinctives of gender roles? Can you profile them? Yeah, just kind of like a, a brief a description. Brief, brief description. Oh, of, could I do that now? Yeah. Oh, I see. <laughs> can I tell him that you asked that question? Yeah, well, yeah, I or did. Is that embarrassing? I, that's not embarrassing. I texted it. <laughs> and Tim. <laughs> but you know, Tim's the one who chose it because he, he, he said, he said hey, look at it. Eh? Tim's all, look at it. He's he's all, that's my question. <laughs> Tim would say, he's like, look at this really cool question. It stayed really well as well. He was really happy. <laughs> so. So PJ would actually like you to profile. I got some of the, I got some of I got some of my men right here that were that I'm discipling. If you're so. a bit confused about this, brother, we'll deal with it privately. <laughs> you guys can text. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's again, it's one of those things like, um, like, um, in, in 30 seconds, could you tell me who Jesus is? And and yes, I can. Uh, on the other hand. It, uh, depending on who's asking the question, you might not need a 30 question and a 30 second answer. You really might need a two hour answer, and I need to probe you too on where you're having your questions and debates about who Jesus is. Are you asking out of the framework of a Buddhist, out of the framework of a Jehovah's Witness, out of the framework of a Mormon, out of the framework? Do, 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 do you see what I mean? And so when people start saying, in the, in the light of gender confusion and all that, would I be happy to summarize what a godly man, godly woman looks like? Yeah, I can give you 30 seconds on it. But on the other hand, I don't think it'd be very helpful um, be, be, because it, it, it's the sort of thing that really needs much more like two hours precisely because of all the confusion around and depending on where, where it's coming from. Is it coming from a really, really patriarchal figure? Who, 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 who doesn't know what it means to love his wife as Christ loved the church? Or is it coming from, from an egalitarian who's absolutely convinced that there's no distinction whatsoever between men and women and, and, under any circumstances except that one can have babies and the other one can't? And, and, and th those are two very different kinds of, or is it coming from somebody who's just gone through a transgendering op operation? Or is it coming from, from the homosexual community or, or, or whatever? All of those, those um, and even within the homosexual community, a majority of male homosexuals are actually bisexual. That looks a bit different from the minority that are purely homosexual in orientation. And, and I, I want to know much more of the background when people start asking me, is it a sexual question first and foremost? Or is it a behavioral question about how men and women operate in the home and the use of the time and bring up their children? And you know, So I'm really reluctant to answer that question unless you give me about two hours. <laughs> And, and even then, I might double it, uh, um, <laughs> j just because it's one of those things that is so easily uh, misunderstood or, or misappropriated just with, with sloganeering. So maybe we do that one in France. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think I think there'd be two more good questions going. Maybe we'll trespass just five minutes into the break. You guys know that? Yeah. Just to. Um, <laughs> We got a lot of questions about N.T. Wright and the new perspective, and then I think we hit that, that last one. So um, especially in Romans 3, we're trying to just put a bunch of texts together. But how do we address 
and I'm sure you have to briefly state what the new so-called new perspective is on Paul. Um, did C.H. Dodd, did he influence N.T. Wright on justification, yeah. and how does that affect the church today right. in two minutes or less? Oh. <laughs> Just kidding. You can have five. I don't know if my dear brother Tim knows this, but a couple Probably of other not. guys and I edited two fat volumes, 600 pages each, total of 1,200 pages on this issue called Justification and Variegated Gnomism. And he wants me to address it in two minutes. I mean, he has cheek. What can I say? I also wanted you to sign it. I brought it today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do that later. Um, the, the issue has become just incredibly complex, and, and partly because Tom keeps modifying his position, too. Moreover, you have to understand that, that, that um, when I talk about Tom, I mean, we were exact contemporaries. He was at Oxford doing his doctoral work when I was at Cambridge doing mine. We used to meet in the summer, and we, our friendship goes back to, to the early 70s. You know? So it, this is not talking about somebody whom I've only known in, 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 in books or so, something. We still might meet at Society of Biblical Literature professional meetings and have a good old sit down with a, a cat fight between us about what's going on. I mean, it, it, it's not something that's been done in separate corners or anything like this. And, um, and, 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 uh, uh, and moreover, Thomas kept changing his views. What Tom does is take a position and then, oh, I, should, I should say that at one point, his, his theology and my theology were very close. And then he took a, a, a swing toward what came to be called the new perspective, although in fact there are new perspectives. It's, it's, it's a whole school of them, and his is just one school, that, that really was not sustainable. And he was uh, checked by so many people that eventually he's kept modifying and modifying and modifying and modifying. So that today when he articulates it, it's not so much that what he says is just plain wrong, as it was 20 years ago. Um, but as Doug Moo puts it, he tends to background what should be foregrounded and foreground what should be backgrounded. Or that is to say, he tends to emphasize what is relatively peripheral in the New Testament and tends to lose what is absolutely central. Not, not, not by denying it, it's just, it's just not, not central. So um, um, uh, in, in his commentary on Romans, to, to keep it within that, that, that boundary, uh, he has another whole explanation of the closing verses of Matthew, of, of Romans uh, 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 3, 25 and 26 that I, I didn't have time to go into. There are a few people who hold that view, but not very many, and I think they're mistaken. His view is not Dodd's view at all. Dodd's whole thing is something quite different. He's not influenced by Dodd. He's not impressed by Dodd. Um, he's more influenced by, um, by um, the, 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 the results of a of a, another scholar who wrote an important book in 1977 called Paul and Palestinian Judaism, a chap called Ed, Sand Ed Sanders. And um, uh, th that's another whole lineage. Um, but in his commentary on Romans, I don't know if he would say this today. He may have changed his views on this one too. But it's very remarkable. In Romans 3, again, really connects with Romans 4. In Romans 4 begins to talk about the justification of Abraham. And, and Romans 4 unambiguously says that in justifying God, Genesis says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him um, by faith. Um, uh, it, it, it explicitly says that God justifies the ungodly. So, so in other words, the whole flow of the argument there is that the wonderful thing about justification is that Abraham, though he was ungodly, was nevertheless justified by grace through faith. Do you, do you see? Through faith. Whereas he wants it to be, no, 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 no. It was Abraham's obedience, for example, in the matter of um, uh, taking Isaac out to sacrifice him several chapters on in, in Genesis 22, rather than back in, in the early chapters of 12 and 15 where, where Abraham believed God and it was credited him for righteousness. It was his action. It was his action that actually finally justified him rather than the faith. It was the faith as it worked out in action. It was a good thing. But then when he gets to the clause, and thus God justified the ungodly, he actually skips over in his commentary and doesn't even comment at all. Not one line on it. Absolutely not. So the whole argument reads very well in the commentary, so long as you don't actually read the Bible. <laughs> you, you, you know, whereas the whole flow of the argument is 118 to 320 is talking about how we're all sinful and under the wrath of God. Then the section on the cross, which I think he mangles, and then it's talking about Abraham and how God justifies the ungodly. And he still wants it to come out a quite different way. I mean, I, 
Tom, bless his heart, he's a brilliant communicator, a brilliant debater, and a first-class writer. He's as interesting as can be. But on the other hand, um, I do think he misses the point just so often that uh, he's not the first source on which I want to rely. Let, let, let me put it this way. Um, even in his more recent uh, metamorphosis, uh, and he, he knows that I say, say this about him. He knows that I'm not talking behind his back. I mean, we, 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 we've talked these things out. Um, uh, I heard him two, two or three years ago give a, a brilliant summary of the whole Bible storyline in 10 or 15 minutes. It was, it was brilliant. And if I could reduce it to 30 seconds or so, it went something like this. Only he had 10 minutes and he made it brilliant. In the beginning, God made everything and it was good. We horribly rebelled against him. And, and, and we corrupted our human relationships. We corrupted our relationship with the, with the universe and, and with the world, the world all around us. Everything was ugly and despicable. But mercifully, God came after us. He came after us in the giving of the law. He came after us in Abraham. He came after us again and again. We despised his good gifts again. We're still corrupting the world, usurping, exploiting the resources instead of being good stewards. And our own relationships are all twisted and bad and so on and so on. But in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. And, and, and the kingdom was introduced, and, and, and uh, he went to the cross not only for his Jewish people, but for, for, for the human race at large, and, and triumphed over sin, and defeated death, and introduced the kingdom in a spectacular way, which he in, invites us to participate in, to roll back the forces of darkness in, in our relationships, and even in our connection with the world. Eventually, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, so already we should be ecologically responsible, and appropriately green, and all the rest, and, and, and fight war, and, 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 and so on, so on, so on. You know, rousing cheers. Is that a faithful representation of things or not? He keeps talking about the importance of the Bible storyline. I, I agree. I, no one is stronger on stressing the Bible storyline than I am. But I think that he's missed one of the major elements of the Bible storyline. Namely, the Old Testament talks more than 600 times of the wrath of God. He almost never mentions it. So that the heart of our lostness in the Bible is not in the first instance that we're not ecologically sensitive or our human relationships. It's first and foremost that we're idolaters. The sin, the, the Bible can condemn people for hoarding the wages of their workers, for example, and for social injustice. It can. Read opening chapters of, uh, of Isaiah, read Amos, of course, of course, of course. But the overwhelming emphasis on the Bible, the overwhelming emphasis on the nature of sin in the Bible is bound up with idolatry. And God is a jealous God, and he is wrathful against us. So that the nature of what the cross must address, therefore, is the wrath of God. He almost never mentions it. And that means that the whole thing gets skewed when you talk about the cross. The cross, then, is the defeat of death. It's the, the, and all of the things that he affirms about the cross are right. And because we've kept hammering him on the wrath of God, then somewhere he's got a footnote that says, and of course, there is this note about uh, penal substitution and so on. We acknowledge that that's also present. And so after he hears me saying the sort of criticism that I've given here, he will respond by saying, hey, you're, not, you're not representing me fairly. You see, I've got that in too. I've got that in on page 46, um, footnote 37. <laughs> and I want to say... Tom, Tom, uh, yeah, but it's not a footnote. It's, it's 600 times, you know? <laughs> and I don't think that you're understanding the atonement passage uh, correctly in its, in, in its own context. It's, it's got skewed. In other words, to use Doug Moo's criticism, you're emphasizing what is there in the text, but it's of relatively secondary importance, and you're losing what's of primary importance. I, I just think he's a very gifted, articulate man who... Um, somehow has lost the center somewhere along the line. What can I say? Do I learn things from him? Yeah, I do. I, I do. But, but what we don't... He's also... He, he has a style of writing that some scholars have um, in, in which basically, without saying it, I mean, they're, they're never so crass as to say it, everybody's got it wrong except me. Now, he, he would never say it quite like that. But he tends to paint in these great generalities. Of course, Christians have long argued wrongly that. Da -da 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 he doesn't mention any Christians who have argued it rightly. And then he says what is right, and everybody says, oh, yes, that's right. I want to be on that side, because that's right. That's the truth. So he tends to divide young people, especially, into those who are either for him or against him. And I don't think that's healthy. I mean, I, I, I don't want people to base their Christianity on Tom Wright or on Don Carson, for that matter. I mean, everything's got to be tested by, by Scripture. I don't want people to be Don Carson groupies. 
and I don't want people to be Tom Wright groupies. I mean, at the end of the day, you have to be a Jesus groupie, you, you know? And, and that means you, you... That's right. Yeah, I know. Jesus groupies. Yeah. Before I close in prayer, it's a, just a really quick question, but just a, a practical thought um, to, to close. It seems that there has been a renewal of gospel-centered focus in many churches today. How do we keep this from, yeah, amen. How do we keep this from being a fad? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. A fad or just a point of division or just one more label or, or whatever, you know. At the moment, it's wonderful. I'm, you know, I'm more encouraged about what's going on today in the Western world than I have been in 10 years. I mean, I can see all kinds of marks of decline, but I see this, the, you know, we'll, we'll have seven or 8,000 people next year at, at the, the, the coalition meetings, and 85% uh, of them will be under the age of 45. Um, I think that's fantastic. I mean, especially at my age, to think that anybody's showing up at all to hear me at this stage is really, really quite remarkable. Uh, it, it, it's a wonderful thing. God is raising up another generation of relatively young people. I, I think it's, it's humbling, it's terrific, it's encouraging. But at the same time, you think of all the ways we have of blowing it. And, and, and all that does, it seems to me, is drive you to your knees and ask for, for forbearance and forgiveness and not too many disasters and God's protection. I, you start praying, Lord, there have been times when you have done it for a very sustained period of time, like the Evangelical Awakening, 60 years of gospel blessings, you know? 60 years. You just transformed the life of the nation and the British Empire. And of the American colonies, too, at the time. Because I was bound up on this side of the Atlantic with Jonathan Edwards, too. And you, you just pray that God will preserve us in love for one another and in faithfulness and learning over again and again and again. I, there, there are just no guarantees. I, and, and especially there are no institutional guarantees. Uh, you see, when people ask that question, I'm, I, I don't know who asked the question, so I don't want to ascribe bad motives, but when people ask that question, you know, what can, what can you do to avoid it becoming a fad? Or, or, or then, then, then people are often looking for institutional answers. But there are no institutional answers that guarantee anything. You show me the institution, I'll show you how to corrupt it. And, 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 and so at the end of the day, the only answers are themselves gospel answers, which, which means coming back and rearticulating the gospel, understanding it, probing it constantly, reading deeply in historical theology, rereading the Bible, thinking it through, bearing witness, passing it on to another generation, living out the gospel um, in life and conduct. I, I don't know anything other than that. I mean, and, and who would want anything more than that? that? That is the anticipation of the new heaven and the new earth. That, that is what the church ought to be. And, and, and um, so I am less worried about this becoming a fad as I am of people becoming a bit bored and looking for another kind of fad. You know, that, that, that's what I think is probably a greater danger. Oh, yes, well, we believe the gospel too, but of course uh, we also need to understand that and then fill in the blank with some cultural observation. And uh, a bare 15 years ago, in the heyday of the so-called emerging church, um, then we were being told by an awful lot of people that you couldn't preach that gospel to those people because postmodernists wouldn't accept it. You had to revise the gospel on half a dozen different fronts, you, you know? But as I look around the nation, the, the churches that are most fruitful in evangelizing complete outsiders are those that have an extremely robust theology whether of the Tim Keller sort and PCA tradition or a Mark Driscoll sort, these guys are not sort of theological wimps, you know? And where the gospel is advancing and people are being converted, they're not looking for how we can't possibly offend people with postmodern sensitivities. They're really saying, this is the truth, repent and believe, and articulating it robustly and thoughtfully, coherently and wisely, with close application and so on. That's what we have to do in, in every generation, again and again and again and again and again, or without end. And may God have mercy on us. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do ask for forgiveness. Keep us from going astray. We just pray that by your spirit, you would enable us to be faithful with that which you've entrusted to us, to our last breath. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.